Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca Gagan, and this is Waving Not Drowning, a UVic Bounce podcast. Today's episode is being recorded on the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Wasanich and Lekwungen peoples. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waving Not Drowning. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm so glad that you've joined us. I'm Rebecca Gagan, and I'm an associate teaching professor in the Department of English here at the University of Victoria. I'm also the founder and director of UVic Bounce, out of which the Waving Not Drowning podcast comes. If you're new here, let me tell you a little bit about the Waving Not Drowning podcast. In each episode, I talk with either a university alumni, faculty, or student about their experiences as a university student, sometimes as an undergrad or as a grad student. And what we do is really share stories of challenge and difficulty and really reflect on some of the experiences, the obstacles that really are a part of university uh, education, but quite often not talked about. And there's also a bit of stigma around those stories. We talk about everything from uh, mental health issues to experiencing uh, financial distress to worry about grades and perfectionism and failure and to experiencing failure. We talk about being the first in your family to attend university or wanting to change paths and and really not knowing how to do that or if that's okay, or maybe wanting to leave your university education altogether, maybe permanently, or maybe just for a year or half a year. We really cover the full range of experiences that students have at university and their experiences that too often are really um, not talked about. And that can be for a lot of reasons. You know, at university, we tend to really focus on the positive and on success. But what happens for students then is that when they encounter an obstacle, which we all do, so that is inevitable. Students can often feel very alone, as if they're the only ones experiencing this particular difficulty or challenge. It can feel as if it's not supposed to happen, that there's something wrong with them. And I think the feeling of being alone is just so debilitating. It's a feeling that is also very much one of shame. And so what we really do here is try to share our stories, not only to destigmatize those stories of challenge and difficulty and, and say that it's okay to share those stories, we need to share those stories, but also really to share stories to work to change campus culture and build a more supportive and compassionate environment. In season one of Waving Not Drowning, I talked with faculty and alumni about their experiences as students. In season two, which launches next month, I talk exclusively with students who have recently graduated, 
either from their undergrad or from a graduate degree. And they share with me their stories of being a student and the kinds of obstacles that they encountered, how they got through them. And they talk about life post-graduation. I can't wait for you to listen to this next series. In the meantime, I am so delighted to share with you two episodes that are very close to my heart. In these episodes, I talk with my dear friend, mentor, and teacher, and founding member of McMaster Bounce, David Clark. Dr. David Clark is a professor in the Department of English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University, where he is also a member of the Council of Instructors in the Arts and Science Program and an associate member of the Department of Health, Aging, and Society. David's teaching and research focuses on a broad range of subjects from social and political thought to critical theory to 18th century German philosophy. He has published research on topics ranging from the gaze of animals to desecration of the war dead during the Napoleonic era to the surgical separation of conjoined twins. He was born into a white professional household, but as luck would have it, starting in high school, he endured periods of homelessness, illness, and poverty, and had to make his way in the world without the support of a family. While in graduate school, he was briefly hospitalized for depression. But he adds that he was never alone because he was consistently lifted up by loving friends and inspiring teachers. One of the things he looks forward to every year is hearing his students' own stories and thus understanding a bit more about where they are coming from and where they are heading. In recent years, David has turned his attention to the limits and possibilities of higher education. For example, he chaired two successive committees of the Ontario Council on Graduate Studies, the provincial body overseeing the quality of graduate programs in Ontario. He is a founding member of McMaster Bounce, a project devoted to sharing some of the many different stories told by McMaster faculty and alumni about their experiences as students. And McMaster Bounce is, of course, uh, closely modeled on UVic Bounce. Recently, he was an active member of both the Teaching and Learning Advisory Board and the McMaster University Okanagan Mental Health and Wellbeing Task Force, two groups looking specifically at the pressing question of what needs to be done to help our students flourish. Out of that work came an essay, Abolish the University, Build the Sanctuary Campus. Earlier, anti-Islamophobia work on behalf of the Canadian child soldier Omar Qatar led to another essay exploring the ethical and political responsibilities of the university. Can the university stand for peace? Omar Qatar, higher education, and the question of hospitality. And to the creation of the Hospitality Project, which invited youth to write letters welcoming Mr. Qatar's release from his illegal and unconstitutional incarceration in Guantanamo Bay. David Clark is the recipient of awards for both undergraduate education and graduate supervision. In this episode, you'll really be listening in on a conversation between two friends, two teachers, two students who are sharing really 
not only their experiences in the classroom, both as students and as teachers, but also their thoughts on what needs to change about university education so that every citizen of the university, as David says, can flourish. In this episode, I also share some of my own very personal story that I've not shared with you, my Waving Not Drowning audience. And I have to say that the reason I've not previously shared this on this podcast really has so much to do with the subject of today's episode, which is shame, institutional shaming, uh, the shame that we feel as uh, students and as we go through the educational system. I was really hesitant to share this piece of my story because I realized that I was still carrying some shame about it. But this episode in which I get to talk with my dear friend seemed really like the right space in which to share with you some of what I experienced as a grad student and that led to a really powerful shattering of my identity and that was a very transformative experience for me, but also a profoundly difficult one. David really helped me to face the shame that I experienced and that I had been carrying for a long time. And so it made perfect sense to me that I would share this part of my story in an episode in which David was my guest. David and I talk about the experience of feeling as if you are only a student number and that your experience, who you are as a person is not seen and it is not counted. And we really talk about what needs to change at the university so that no student needs to feel the kind of shame, for example, that I experienced. No student needs to feel as if they, th their lived experience, who they are, is simply invisible and doesn't matter. We talk about what we can do as students and as educators to really build as David writes about the sanctuary campus, you know, how can we build a campus in which all citizens have the chance to flourish? I'm Rebecca Gagan, here today with David Clark, and this is Waving, Not Drowning. Well, David, as you know, I have for so long wanted to have you uh, as a guest on the Waving Not Drowning podcast. And I am just so delighted that the day has come where I get to uh, talk with you, my uh, friend, my mentor, and uh, my teacher, whom I've now known for, is it 
I think like 20, more than 25 years, maybe 25, yes. I think 25, yes. 94, <laughs> 94. So thank you for being here today. And, um, you know, this is a bit of a different episode, as I have shared in the introduction, in that it made sense to talk to you, not only because you are, um, have been my teacher, uh, and I talk so much in the you know, the podcast series about my own experience as a student. And so it made perfect sense to me to talk with you, but also because you have been instrumental in launching um, McMaster Bounce at your university. And so as a member of that team, um, it's just wonderful to be able to sort of come together with uh, my alma mater, with McMaster, and certainly be able to talk with you um, as I say, my my dear friend, um, about all things related to how we can start to reimagine the university space, think about the kinds of conversations we have, um, how we support students going forward, and really just to share our own experiences, uh, not only as professors, but really as students, our own experiences of, of being a part of the university. So thank you, thank you, David, for, for being here today. Thank you, Rebecca, for inviting me. It's just, uh, it's a delight always to, to be in, in your company. And uh, I thought I'd say too, before we get going today, that uh, to say publicly what you know I've said to you privately, and that is that I'm very sorry about your father's uh, recent passing. Um, as you know, he was an important part of my uh, life. Um, he was my first dean. He was the dean that, in fact, hired me way back in the late 1980s. Uh, and um, and re really, he was a, just a, a, such a strong supporter of me. I don't, I don't think my department at the time knew what to do with me. Um, and, uh, you know, I was a kind of alien there. Um, and uh, even though your father as a historian uh, was working with archives and methodologies that were like on another planet from the kind of work that I was doing, uh, he nevertheless uh, was a, a, a great supporter of me. And, uh, and one of the reasons why I sort of survived those early years in a 10 year stream was because I knew that he had my, my back. So I, I wanted to, to say to you, Rebecca, that I, I am sorry for his loss. You must, you must miss him dearly. I do. And, you know, I, I think that being able to talk with you and, and think back about McMaster, of course, always makes me feel closer to him since I was a student at McMaster when he, in fact, was Dean of Humanities. And that's when I took your class, the critical theory class in, um, gosh, I think that must have been 94, my third, my third year. And I, I was... I was thinking about that class because so 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 that was my my first introduction to critical theory but more than that it was my first introduction to uh, or my first chance to really be given permission to start to think about and indeed to really question the university so you assigned which I know you remember um, a piece by Derrida uh, an essay entitled um, The University in the Eyes of Its Pupils. Yes. And that essay just changed everything for me in that, and certainly also the way you taught that essay, 
which was really this this moment of of as I say being given permission to think about the university to question it to wonder about its reason for being yes you know why yeah. you know what what are we doing here and I remember you saying in that class that every student needed the opportunity to think about the space that at the university about what they're doing there that students aren't given enough opportunities to question and to really ask the most difficult and most pressing questions of the university. I don't know if you remember saying that, but you 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 did say that in one of your lectures, which I've always I've always remembered. And and as I was just saying to you, I think that my work on balance in many ways started back then when I took that class and started to think about you know, what are we doing here when we come together to study at the university? What is the purpose of the university? Well, it's so interesting to he hear, Rebecca, because, you know, it reminds me of the uh, the windy path from there to here. And um, there's always a, a wonderful story, many stories to be told as you sort of try to trace that, that path. Um, you know, I remember, of course, you in the class, sitting there in the, in, in the front row and, um, and I, I, I remember you, you know, taking up the, this this essay um, in, in a very particular way. It doesn't always work with students, but it, it often does, and it, and and it most often works with with students that have what you have, which is to say, intellectual uh, courage, the courage to look at the institution of which you are a vital part. Which is how I always view students; they're a vital vital part arguably no more vital part of the university than being a student. And this notion that a, a student deserves, uh, in a sense, has a kind of right to be given the um, tools mm -hmm. with which to query uh, unapologetically um, what a university is, what it was, what it is now, what it wants to be, how others view it, and how you view it yourself, all of those questions need, need to be asked. And one of the reasons why I've assigned that essay by Derrida in various courses off and on over the last several decades is because, you know, I've always believed that a required first year course at university should be a course on, on the university because it really matters where the university uh, came from. You know, I was saying to a group of students just recently, uh, a group of students from the arts and science program where I am uh, a member of the council of instructors and have taught for a number of years in that program. And um, uh, the group gathered together, um, ostensibly uh, in part to discuss abolish the university, but the larger premise of the meeting, there were probably about 80 of us, 90 of us there, uh, was to, it was the first time I'd been on campus in two years. And um, the sensible purpose of that gathering was to discuss the future of the university. And I began my own remarks by saying, let's think about the past. The university as it currently stands, and you certainly know this from your own work, the university as it is currently shaped uh, owes its genesis to what the university really was around uh, 1800, mm -hmm. uh, 1809, you know, whatever the University of Berlin looked like at the beginning of the 19th century. And I was pointing out to my arts and science students that it matters that, that the university owes its sort of fundamental structure to, to uh, uh, German-speaking uh, universities from so long ago. And I sort of said a kind of a rhetorical question to these students, 
you know, isn't it about time we sort of rethought <laughs> what a university is? Because it's not the University of Berlin in 1809. And I'm not sure the university as it was shaped in 1809 was doing anybody any favors either. So, you know, we may have inherited a kind of model that had a, uh, was stale dated. And what we're doing, munching away on something that is in fact uh, probably outdated and it doesn't match the needs demands of the 21st century, uh, I, I don't know. Um, in any case, that essay, one of the reasons I love teaching that essay is that it certainly put to me, as it sounds like it put to you, um, that the university is no, isn't a single stable thing and, and, and shouldn't be. And as you say that it, I mean, when, when you put it that way, that it's, you know, the university is really has inherited this model that is long past its ex expiring date, right? And that we keep trying to work with an outdated model rather than just abolish it, right? And as you said, that it is an institution that can be rebuilt, like can be abolished and rebuilt. Yes. Um, you know, that we continue to work with that and, you know, haven't been able to realize that we can reimagine it anew, like in, in, you know, entirely. And I think that, as you say, Derrida's essay really opened, um, just, you know, opened the door for me to just start that kind of thinking about what kind of a place is this, but also what kind of a place do we want it to be, yes. uh, for, you know, for all of us. And I think that, you know, taking that class, um, having you as my instructor at that point, I, I you know, I couldn't have known <laughs> at that time, you know, I really do remember that, that moment and, um, and just how it started to change, how, how I thought about um, the university, but also my place in the university. And, and as I said, I couldn't have known then that I would become a professor myself, uh, but, but as you know, and as you said, I mean, it's, you know, there are many ways, there are many paths, you know, I could trace back to, to the beginning of Bounce, let's say, but, but one of the things that happened, you know, in that class was that, as you know, you became a mentor to me um, from that moment on. And so much of how I think about being a professor and what it means to um, teach with love, you know, how to support students, you know, so much of that really comes from your model and how you, you taught me that because you showed that in your mentorship, right. And in your own teaching. And, you know, I want to talk about a couple of, you know, lots of things today with you, but, uh, I mean, one of the things that, I want to ask you about is your own experience as a student. How has that shaped your teaching, your approach to the university, to students? So you've been teaching now for, we're going to say 30, 30 years, David, and you've, you, you've written this essay coming out in the uh, Centennial Review Yes. very soon. Uh, called Abolish the University, Build the Sanctuary Campus, in which you very unequivocally call for, really, <laughs> the abolishment of the university and to rebuild it 
in a way that really embraces what we've been talking about as a kind of what it might mean to teach with love. And as you say in that essay, um, that you want to find a way to keep the eyes of my students from growing accustomed to the dark and to, th to think about how to end a certain kind of suffering for the citizens of the university. Because as you say, if one citizen is harmed, everyone is. Yes. So what I want to, I mean, that's just a, a little bit of what you say in this phenomenal and very powerful essay, but I, I want to talk, David, about how you get from, you know, your early days teaching, you know, or your own experience, even go back further, your own experience as a student. How do you get to this moment in 2021 where, you know, when you started writing this essay where you, you just say it, right? You just state so directly and so clearly, even if your own teaching has been following a certain philosophy, a certain idea about how the university should be, you just say it, you've, you've gotten to this point where you just come out and, and really declare what needs to happen here. So why don't you tell me a little bit about, first of all, maybe your own experience as a student? Which is a big question because I, I mean I know a bit, but um, you know that you left you left home right as a teenager. Yes, I, I spent the, my last year in, in high school. I I was uh, how to put this politely. I, I escaped a deeply dysfunctional home, and um, and lived for a little while uh, homeless and um, sometimes just under the threat of being homeless, like just looking for a place to, to sleep. Um, for some dear friends, different kinds of friends, the parents or some of my classmates took me in for, for various stretches of time. And so I managed to finish high school as a teenager uh, away from, from my own family and um, which was a very, very good, it was a way to, for me to, to, to survive. Um, but looking back, I saw that being in school, being in high school, finishing up the last year of high school under those uh, rather fraught conditions. And as an undergraduate student, uh, I, I came in later years to see that um, that school for me, under an undergraduate education for me was, among many other things, a kind of place of uh, solace. You know, that the the thinkers that I was engaging with and the teachers that I was listening so intently to, uh, the essays that I was writing, all of the work that goes into a humanities undergraduate degree that, that was, it was in, in large part a, a place that was sort of familiar to me. Um, it, it helped me thrive. That being said, and just shows you how paradoxical its origins are, that being said, that as safe as the university was for me, a place of a certain kind of safety, uh, I wouldn't recommend anybody being the kind of undergraduate that I was. I mean, absolutely not. And in, in a funny way, my own teaching, uh, my own uh, life as a professor, especially as the teaching part of my life as a professor, is in, in some way an attempt to make sure that no undergraduate student in my class ever does what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or endured what I endured. Yeah, yeah. 
because I, I just didn't, I, I, I wouldn't wish that on, on anyone. Um, you know, uh, years of deep, uh, a, d- a deeply dispiriting mm-hmm. life in a certain way, uh, isolating. Um, you know, I just absolutely threw myself into the work. Uh, and I'm, re- I'm still reaping the rewards of those years of deep involvement with the work. Um, so it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, uh, but at the same time, it was un- unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did s- suffer from it, uh, you know, as I started graduate school. Uh, after being that kind of undergraduate, I really was in very poor shape uh, physically and psychologically. Mm-hmm. I really shouldn't have gone straight into, into graduate school, but, but I did. And so that memory of, you know, how not to be an undergraduate um, has, has stayed with me. You know, it reminds me of that wonderful story that the fragment that Kafka left us, I think it's from around 1920. And, and it's this little fragment uh, in which Kafka talks about a great swimmer, an Olympian swimmer, who wins some Olympian race. And people all around him are congratulating him, saying, well done, well done. And what the swimmer is saying to people, though, although they won't listen to him, is this, is that once upon a time, I didn't know how to swim. And I still don't know how to swim. <laughs> in other words, the not being able to swim, I carry with me into my adult life and including my life as a swimmer. And I've often felt that that's really my experience as a teacher is that I, 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 I have always brought with me, um, you know, not really knowing how to be a student, not knowing how to be a healthy uh, um, student. And, um, and that that in a way is in a kind of secret way has activated my, my teaching uh, and my, my philosophy of teaching, if, if you could call it that. But you know, along the way, especially in graduate school, I had some just amazing teachers. I mean, I, I, was, I was so blessed. Uh, I had some really crappy teachers too. And, um, but I had the ones that I remember uh, are, are the ones who, who were just so uh, generous and um, encouraging, but, but, but stern too. And that, you know, that, that helped me become the teacher that I am today, because unlike uh, some of my colleagues who think that sternness and generosity are mutually exclusive, I don't, I don't think that that's the case at all. I think that you can be, at least I try to be, a, ver- a very encouraging teacher, but, but also expecting a great deal of my students. And, and that's in part because the best teachers that I had were, were like that with me. And in fact, were, they were like that with me long after I ceased being a student and became a colleague and a friend. So that one of my mentors, I have two mentors. I mean, God, what, the, what kind of world is it in which you, you are blessed with two mentors? You're lucky if you get one in your life, but I had two. And one of them, um, the late Ross uh, Woodman, uh, he and I became good friends after I finished my dissertation. He co-directed my dissertation. And, you know, we would meet for lunch for years and years. And he was in his 80s and then into his early 90s. And we would still meet for lunch. I would drive from Toronto to London and, and have lunch with him. And we'd always share a little bit of work beforehand so that we could discuss it over lunch. And invariably, Ross 
would he would start the conversation. He would say, well, you know, the work you shared with me, David, it's okay. <laughs> but but <laughs> I, I, I actually think you probably could do better. And I, I loved him for that. I really did. I, I yeah. cleaved closer to him. Yeah. Because he remained that teacher. Yeah. Where he would say that you could do better, and I hope you do, without for a moment scolding me mm -hmm. um, or, or, or making me feel embarrassed. He just made me want to work harder, think better. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love it that right to his last days, he was that teacher uh, to me. Well, and I, I think, you know, I think you, you are that teacher and have been that, that teacher to me. And I'll say more about that in a minute, but I, I think you raise really just such an important um, point here about this belief that rigor and kindness or rigor and compassion, you know, can't live harmoniously in the same teacher, right? That you, yes. that, that somehow by being generous with your students in all of the ways in which we think about teachers being generous, um, you're kind, you're giving, you're giving in, or you're, you're being easy on your students, or you're, um, you're relaxing your academic uh, standards or something like that. And I, I, and I think that that's a belief. And when we talk about the outdated model of the university, that goes with it, right? So this certain way in which a teacher might inhabit the classroom space is when, when you step into that classroom or onto that Zoom or however you are um, teaching, you also bring with you, I think, that whole history and all of that baggage that might suggest that this is how you embody the classroom, you know, this is how you treat students, and so I often think that, um, just as you've said, David, like when we are trying to think about changing how we approach students, you know, changing the university, that it begins at that level of teaching and that we can't do that unless we actually cast off this model of the university that might suggest that rigor and kindness like can't live together, right? Because it means then you're not, you're not, uh, you're not tough, you're, you've, you've relaxed the standards, right? So, and I, I think this is how you have always been as a teacher. I remember, you know, bringing you drafts of my work <laughs> as a master's student and just being terrified, right? But, <laughs> but I know, you know, but I think it's hard for you to, you know, see yourself that way, but, yes, you know, yes. being, being very nervous. And, but along the way, there were things that you said to me as a student that were so transformative. I mean, that changed how I saw myself as a student that were so supportive. I mean, for example, I remember you saying to me once when I was really struggling with a deadline, you know, we would talk on the phone and I would share with you my, my, my struggle. And you said, you never need to feel ashamed. There is no place for shame at the university, or there's no place for shame in education, you said. Right. And I had felt, you know, so deeply ashamed that I, I mean, I had severe writer's block um, when I was working on my dissertation. And 
just so stuck and, and feeling that I was failing and letting everybody down, right? That I just couldn't do it. And I think in some ways, you know, I, I, I didn't expect that I, that you would say those things, that you would say that. And it just changed everything, I think, for me, because it gave me a sense of permission that it was, while it was rough, I didn't need to feel that way, mm -hmm. right? That that didn't have to be a part of this. I, I, I think that that is something that I, I hope, you know, <laughs> professors are saying to their students, but I know so many students. And of course, for me, it's shame was a huge part of my academic journey. You know, mm -hmm. just feeling that I wasn't meeting the standard, that I couldn't do it, um, that I was failing. So that, so that was very foundational for me, for you to say that in your own approach and still expecting from me and sort of, you know, pushing me, but in a way that was never shaming, right? That that my struggle wasn't something that I needed to be embarrassed about. Um, and, you know, that helped me just immeasurably as I was going through my own graduate school experience, which, you know, as you know, was so difficult for me. Uh, you know, I had terrible anxiety, you know, periods of, of depression, um, and just feeling that I couldn't make the project work. Like I just, just, you know, just blocked. And so I think that um, you brought to your mentorship this sense that when you talk about bringing your own experience of not being a, a healthy student, right, of, of going about things in a way that was unhealthy, you brought that to your own mentorship by saying to me, you know, talking about your own experience, right, talking about about writing and how difficult that could be at times. Mm. Trying to remind me that, you know, how to break a project down. I mean, there was practical advice that you offered, of course, in your mentorship, but it was the, it was the more personal comments about your own experience in grad school, um, the competition, <laughs> the, you know, the way in which the university wasn't really guarding the souls of those students, the graduate students, right? That, um, and, and, and still is not, right? And so, I mean, David, you know that you helped me through one of the most difficult parts of my own journey, which was when um, in 2019, I ultimately had to uh, withdraw from the PhD and, uh, come to the realization that that project, that particular project wasn't going to be finished. You know, in the months leading up to that, where I endured just so like profound levels of anxiety in terms of trying to finish that project and feeling that the institution didn't really have my back in terms of, um, supporting supporting me and and being able to see me as more than just a a student number who was who was trying to uh, complete their dissertation right 
And so I'll never forget uh, calling you from, I think, um, I don't know, from maybe the highway or something. <laughs> I was, you know, driving back from trying to sort some of this mess out. And you just, again, you know, you didn't shame me. And you, you just talked about how this would sort of be this transformative moment in which I would just move in a new direction, but also where I could grieve the loss of this and be able to continue and be able to continue on, right? But you never framed that as some kind of a failure. Um, and I remember very soon after you sent me things to read, <laughs> material to read, of, you know, about resilience, about, about things that I was working on related to bounce. Do you remember doing that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. As a kind of message for me to sort of have faith in the work, right? Yes. Just as your mentors had, had done for you, right? So to still sort of gently push, but push you in the direction where you where you needed to go. And I mean, you and I had so many conversations then about how the university needed to change, right? And, and that my experience as a grad student was one in which I realized that I would commit the rest of my working life to trying to transform the university into a place that never did to another student what it did to me in terms of how it was so crushing for me the way I was treated that I missed deadlines. When I look back and think, what was the sort of sin I had committed? Like, what had I done? I can see now that I was struggling with a project at complicated time in my own life where I had lots of other things going on. <laughs> including being a full-time professor, um, having, you know, children and, and just um, so many things. And I had asked the, you know, the university had been generous in giving me time, but at a certain point, I just started getting all of these messages from the then um, grad advisor, right? Just saying, you should just quit. You should give up. It would just be easier. It would be better for you if you just stopped. Don't you think it would be better? And there was so much shame attached to those emails. And the more shame I felt, the more I felt I had to push and just keep pushing and pushing. But of course, the more I pushed, the less I was able to even write a single word. Just circling back here, I realized I would never, I would, I would work to do everything I could to make sure that other students didn't have to feel that way, that they were seen. I felt so invisible that I, I wasn't seen um, by the university as somebody who had a full life and other things and just needed some, you know, needed support and needed encouragement and, and needed to feel that it was okay to be struggling, that it was not something I had to be ashamed of. And the fact that, you know, and let's be clear, I was basically forced to withdraw. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because I hadn't met these deadlines and time was up. And 
all of those years of work on a project um, just gone. I mean, not gone, but really. So, you know, I spent that summer in what my then therapist said was um, a kind of um, Albardo where I had to try to grapple with what it meant to not do that project and with my uh, identity as, as somebody who had always identified as being, you know, a PhD student and doing that project. A project that ironically was on, <laughs> as you well know, David, on, uh, you know, really trying to reimagine those um, trajectories that built on the, the, the development uh, and progression of education itself. I mean, there's a lot at play here. Uh, you know, one point I think worth raising is that you said uh, you've been made to feel as if this was all for nothing. Um, but of course, the, the role of the university at that moment was to remind you that it wasn't all for nothing, that all the work that you put in to the dissertation that you were not able to finish, uh, that that work isn't nothing. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of something that Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas says that, uh, that only murderers believe that the dead are nothing. Mm -hmm. Your dissertation was not subject to a murderer. Far from it, that all of that work in one way or another you carry with you and is speaking through you at, at this very moment. And so only if you're the most literal minded fool and there are those uh, at administrative positions in universities, God knows, but only if you're the most literal minded fool and say, well, you didn't get this credential, therefore everything that led up to it is worth nothing. Mm -hmm. Only the most literal minded fool at a university would, would, would think in, in that way. And that doesn't mean that you have to think in that way. And I know that you're not thinking in that way. I know that you carry all that work uh, with you and that it's sort of churning away in the foreground and the background and, and everything that you do about the university. Your dissertation was about the university and, and now you've committed all of these energies and talents and intelligence to, to, to thinking about what a university could be and, and, and should be. I think that your own experience, my view of it looking in from the outside, I, I can see the abject failure of the institution here to accommodate you uh, to accommodate the possibility that, uh, for example, this project didn't work out, but that didn't mean you couldn't pursue a related or completely different project. There was no room. The, the, the university uh, gave you no room to, to mm -hmm. take a breath and rethink. It was this uh, binary thing. It was you were either off or, or on. Yeah. And I, I just think the time has long since come to jettison, to abolish this kind of logic. And, um, but it's so woven into the fabric of university life in which in a sense, students are held hostage to their own programs. Um, it's so woven into the fabric of university life that is so rule bound. You know, it's so, as, as Marx would call it, petty bourgeois, rule-boundedness. Mm -hmm. um, it's so woven into the fabric of the university that, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I came to, to write the essay that I did, that I, I think that the, 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 only, the only thing to do is to, to rend that fabric 
and weave something new. I think I'll pause here with that powerful challenge to weave something new. I'll be back next week with part two of my conversation with David Clark, in which we continue to talk about the importance of abolishing the university and building the sanctuary campus and get a bit more in depth with some of the ideas from David's essay and how he thinks students and faculty can come together to make lasting and transformative changes to the university. You can keep listening to episodes of Waving Not Drowning on Anchor FM, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. We'd love it if you would give us a like and a follow on Instagram at UVicBounce. Tune in next week for another great conversation. Until then, be well. <laughs>